Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. All right, so this week, a couple things going on. One, today is the second day of Shavuot. Now, you might wonder, well, why are there two days of Shavuot? And in the diaspora, in the area outside of Israel, the holidays are doubled traditionally. And so yesterday would have been the day of Pentecost, the day of Shavuot. Today is the second day. And so what happens this week is that since the second day of Pentecost falls on Shabbat, there's an interruption in the weekly Torah schedule. And so we're having a reading from the, Deut- the book of Deuteronomy today instead of continuing into the second portion in the book of Numbers. And so this week we're going to start out with part of that reading, and that's going to lead us into the second part of what we began last week, talking about uh, the, the Jubilee and about preparing for the coming of Yeshua. So let's turn to Deuteronomy 15, starting out in 1 through 6. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release, and this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow, and you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. Now, where this passage is opening up is speaking of the Shemitah. Now, the Shemitah is part of what we discussed last week. It's the seventh year during, okay, so in a period of seven years, you have six years of sowing and planting your crop, and then in the seventh year, you do not. The land gets a Sabbath rest, okay? And so that's what this is speaking of, is the release of the neighbors. So uh, slaves go free and in, in this Shemitah year, and you're not sowing or, or harvesting. Now, one of the things that we talked about last week was in connection to the, the Jubilee or the Yovel. So every, so every seven years you have this Shemitah, you have a rest for the land, and then once you have, in, have seven sets of that completed, you've completed 49 years, and then for the 50th year, the year of Jubilee is proclaimed. And in the year of Jubilee, it's, uh, it's a much larger event where the slaves not only go free, but also everyone who had been removed from their ancestral heritage, from their land, due to poverty, gets to return back to their land. It's also a year where there's no sowing or harvesting, but the primary, the primary things that are taking place in the Jubilee year is a restoration of what was lost. For, that, for those who had been enslaved, They've now been set free. For those who had lost their land, they're now restored to their land. So, so we're starting back up with that in this week's reading. 
And then it continues on. Uh, this week's reading goes into chapter 16 of Deuteronomy, where it begins to recount the three pilgrimage festivals, which are known as the Shalosh Regalim. Okay? And they are Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. So it goes through in some detail of what each of those holidays are, but I want to highlight just a, a couple of verses here. In Deuteronomy 16, verses 9 through 10, the scripture says, you shall count seven weeks. So this is saying after Passover, once Passover begins, you begin counting seven weeks to be the bridge between Passover and Shavuot. You count seven weeks, and you begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. So this seven weeks, of course, a week is six days of work, and then a seventh day when you rest from your creative works. And so once you have seven full weeks completed, then you enter into the celebration of Shavuot, into Pentecost. So much like what we had with discussing how you have a Shemitah, and you have seven sets of Shemitah followed by the Jubilee, for Shavuot, you have seven sets of weeks followed by the celebration of Shavuot. So there's this connection that we discussed in a lot of detail going through, uh, speaking of, of that timeline connection, but then also speaking specifically about various meanings within the Jubilee and how the shofar is sounded to proclaim the freedom. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that again this week, but we'll complete here in Deuteronomy 16 before we go on to that, three times a year shall all your males appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. So that's Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot, which is Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. All right, so as I was speaking about the connection between Shavuot and Jubilee, there's also another important connection that we need to make here. When we go from Passover to Pentecost, these seven weeks that transpire in between link the two holidays together to where one is dependent on the other. So Shavuot is dependent upon Passover. In fact, that's one of the reasons why Shavuot is not given a specific date is because it is connected to Passover by the counting of the weeks. So essentially you can't have Shavuot unless you first have Passover. Because if we look at the holidays overall, it's at the time of Passover that the children of Israel were redeemed out of Egypt. They were taken out of slavery to Pharaoh, and then they were taken through the wilderness, guided by God, all the way to Mount Sinai. And there at Mount Sinai, the children of Israel were taken to God through a covenant, and they became his people, where he became the king over them. So they had been transferred out of Pharaoh's kingdom into God's kingdom. But they had to be set free from Pharaoh before they could come and now be become united with God. 
Okay, so the, the two are, are linked together. We can't pull them apart. And within it, we find God at the center of it all because it's by his power and his might that he delivered his children out of slavery. And then it's by his power and his might that he brought them through the desert and then brought them into covenant with him, placing his spirit there and his presence on Mount Sinai where they were able to hear his voice speak from the mountain. And one of the things with this is it's been God's desire to dwell with man from the beginning. We can look back to the garden and we see God create man and woman. He created Adam and Eve and he placed them together in the garden where his presence was in their midst. And it's part of his plan to bring about that, the restoration of what was lost there at the garden as a result of sin. And he's been working from the beginning to bring that back to fruition. And so as we're talking through this concept of preparing for the coming of Yeshua and the Jubilee, we're ultimately looking forward to the restoration of all things when Yeshua returns and prepares a place for the Father to dwell among his people. And when we began talking about numbers last week, we were talking about how the children of Israel were camped around the tabernacle. They had been camped around Sinai for 11 months, and now they were getting ready to head out and make their way towards the promised land. But God's presence was going to move from the mountain into the tabernacle to lead them on the way to continue to be the center focus because within all of this, that's where, we, that's where we find God or where we need to find God is at the center of our lives and the center of both of our spiritual, of our religious lives and our secular lives. And so what I'm saying there is in every action that we do, whether it's business or whether it's coming to serve at Emmaus Road or within the greater body, it's always God at the center. Now, I want to take us back to reviewing a little bit more about what we talked about last week with regard to the Jubilee. So if we look at Leviticus 25, 8 through 10, the scriptures say, you shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. All right, so when we're talking about the jubilee, we're talking about well, the, the, the Hebrew word that is used for the name of jubilee is yovel. And yovel specifically means a ram's horn. And the ram's horn is sounded to proclaim the year of Jubilee, this year of restoration where each man is returned to his family and each man is returned to his inheritance. And this is all an aspect of redemption being played out. And one of the things uh, last week we talked about was the, the chiasm that brings together the four aspects of redemption that God spoke of in Exodus 6, and then also with God's 
bringing this together with the observance of the Shemitah and the Yovel. Okay, because through this, the Jubilee is an aspect of redemption. It's an aspect of restoration of the, of the people and of the land. Now, back when Moses was going to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt, God made, made promises to, to Moses for the people. And he said, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the labors of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And then I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the labors of the Egyptians. And then this fifth, you know, normally we talk about the four aspects of redemption. We've read the four of those so far, but there's this next verse that says, I shall bring you to the land about which I raised my hand to give it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I shall give it to you as a heritage. So God's saying, first, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to take you out of, your, of the condition you were in, out of slavery, and I'm going to bring you to myself, and then I'm going to take you to your inheritance. So what God's doing is he's setting the captive free and returning the people to their true family with God, and then he's going to take them to the land and give it to, to them as their place to live and the place in which he, he will dwell. So when he's talking about that restoration, it's a people and it's land. Okay, it's a people and a place. And then in Leviticus 26, after God has given the instructions regarding the, the Jubilee and the Shemitah, then he begins to walk in the exact reverse order of what the redemption looks like, where he says, I will place my sanctuary among you and my spirit will not reject you. I will walk among you. And then he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would not be their slaves. And I broke your yoke and made you walk erect. Okay. But the central focus here of the redemption is that God is taking a people unto himself and he's creating a place for them to dwell and for him to dwell in their midst. And last week we, we talked about this aspect of jubilee as consisting of two parts. Okay, it had part one was what occurred at Sinai when God took a people unto himself. And then part two was when he brought the children of Israel to the land and brought them into the land to begin the conquest and gave them victory over Jericho. Now, you may be wondering, how do we connect Sinai and Jericho and the Jubilee? And for a detailed answer to that, please look back at last week's message, which is on YouTube and on our, on our podcast. But the, the word Yovel is not commonly used in the scriptures. It's used in the context of speaking of the Jubilee year, but then it's mentioned two other times specifically in the first five books of the Torah. The first time it's mentioned is in Exodus, when God is telling the children of Israel to prepare for him to come down on the mountain, when he's going to bring them into covenant relationship. And he says that the sound of the Yovel, the children of Israel, may then come up the mountain. 
So God's going to come down on the mountain with his presence there. He's going to speak the Ten Commandments, bring the children of Israel into covenant, and the sound of the Yovel will, will come across the land. And then, then the children of Israel may come up. The second place that is used outside of speaking of the Jubilee year and Sinai is then outside of the five books. It's in Joshua. And it's when the children of Israel are marching around Jericho, God says that you will march around Jericho for seven days. And on the seventh day, you will march around Jericho seven times. And seven priests carrying seven shofars will sound the shofar of Jubilee, the Yovel. Okay, and then it's at that time the walls of Jerusalem, I mean not Jerusalem, the walls of Jericho fell, and then the children of Israel went up into Jericho to take it as the, as the first conquest of God giving them the land of their inheritance. So you have this connection being made between the Jubilee year, Mount Sinai, and Jericho. And remember, the Jubilee year is about returning people to their family and about returning people to their land. So we have the people being taken as a covenant people here in part one at Sinai. And then you have the fulfillment of the, that Jubilee when they actually go into Jericho and begin the conquest of their inheritance that had been promised to, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, when I first thought about this of, okay, what's really happening with Sinai and Jericho? And I thought about, okay, well, really, we have covenant because at Sinai, we often think of Shavuot as being a time of covenant increase for the children of Israel because we know that's when the giving of the Torah took place and when God took Israel as his bride. And then we also know about the giving of the Spirit that happened at Shavuot, at Pentecost, there in Jerusalem. So there's this covenant increase that's taking place. But within the, I felt like it wasn't complete to say covenant was part one because the covenant contains within it promises of a people and a place. So going a step further, and this may sound really obvious, it's a covenant and family and then conquest and inheritance. It's a covenant that creates a family, and it's a conquest that brings about the inheritance that was promised. And um, when I had that thought, I was like, oh, this sounds really good. And then I thought, oh, wait a minute. That's exactly what we read back in Leviticus 25 when he says, every man will be returned to his family and every man to his inheritance. And suddenly it wasn't such a novel idea. It was just scripture. <laughs> but but it's, it's a beautiful picture where, where what we have is this redemption this restoration taking place in two parts. And these two parts taking place, what we're going to talk about today is how it parallels the two comings of Yeshua, our Messiah. Okay, so today being the second day of Shavuot, we would be talking about, and we talked about this some yesterday, about Acts 2 and what take, took place on the day of Pentecost. Now, the day of Pentecost. We often call it that because it's the counting of the 50. It's the alternate name for Shavuot. But it occurs 50 days after the death and resurrection of Yeshua. So we go from Passover, 
And we count seven sets of weeks and we arrive at Pentecost. And when we arrive at this place, we go from redemption, which was bought there at Yeshua's death and resurrection, to the place of being taken as a people and having covenant increase with the gift of the Spirit being poured out on the disciples of Yeshua. In Acts 2, verses 1 through through 6, the scripture says, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the crowd came together and were, were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. Now we know that there's much more to the story, right? Where Peter's going to stand up and pro- proclaim the death and resurrection of Yeshua and that salvation is through him. But when we're looking at this, we say, okay, well, this clearly happened at the time of Shavuot, the same time that the giving of the Torah took place, but are there more connections? And there are many connections that are played out. We're not going to go into great detail on it today. But here they are. The scripture says that they are, that the whole house was filled with the noise, this, this wind, this violent rushing wind. Now the whole house, it's often been mistaken to think that the that the disciples were sitting in the upper room of some house in Jerusalem when the Spirit came. But that's, that's a mistake in that they were gathering together in an upper room throughout time, but on the day of Shavuot, they would have been at the temple. They would have been at the temple worshiping God. And when the Scripture says that they filled the whole house where they were sitting, that's Habayit, which is what is the common phrase used to speak of the temple. It's the house. So the whole temple was filled where they were sitting with the violent rushing wind and, they, and there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves. What's happening in this scene is that Sinai is being revisited. Okay, All the children were camped around the mountain of God. Well, the temple mount is the mountain of God. So here they are at the mountain of God and there's a violent rushing wind just as there was wind at Sinai. There are thunders happening and lightning, flashes of fire at Sinai. And now here we see fire coming and distributing upon each of the disciples. Now we might think, okay, well, that's interesting, lightning versus tongues of fire being distributed. But very specifically, in Exodus 20, verse 18, the Scripture says, And all, and all the people saw the voices and the torches, torches is, is one of the explicit translations of what happened here. So they saw, they saw the voices. That's interesting, right? For one, that, that a voice could be manifest such that they could see. And then they're seeing these torches. And in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 4, 6, 436, Moses says, Out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. Well, when we take what was happening there at Sinai and combine it with Jeremiah 23, 29, which says, 
Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? So his word is like a fire. So as he speaks, his word goes, goes forth as fire and like a hammer breaking rocks in pieces. The sages taught with regard to this, that this verse means that just as a hammer is divided into many sparks when it strikes the rock, so too every single word that went forth from the Holy One, blessed is he at Sinai, split up into 70 tongues. Okay? And additionally, it's the, the Talmud says, and all the people saw, or the, the note says, and all the people saw the voices. Note it doesn't say the voice, but the voices. Okay, so Rabbi Yochanan said that John's, or that God's voice, just as it was uttered, split up into 70 voices in 70 tongues so that all the nations should understand. Okay, so it was already understanding that God's voice which came forth was like a flame that went forth that people saw and it split up into 70 voices. Why 70 voices? 70 because that's the number of nations within the world. So it represents all nations. So if God's voice was split into 70 tongues and the people beheld the voices and the fire at Sinai, how much is that alike what's taking place here at Sinai? It, it, in, it, excuse me, at Pentecost in Jerusalem, when tongues of fire are distributing themselves and the disciples are speaking and everyone from every nation under heaven, as it says here, was hearing them in their own voice but that the word was divided into 70 tongues so that all might hear. There's, there's more to the connections that's, that's taking place here between Pentecost at Sinai and Pentecost in Jerusalem, but there's a strong connection here of really a recreation of what took place and God taking his people to a greater level of covenant relationship. And, and, and within this, right, we talked about the children of Israel being brought out of Egypt, out of Pharaoh's kingdom, so that they might be brought into the kingdom of God. So too, through the death and resurrection of Yeshua, we're delivered out of sin and death, out of dominion of sin and death, so that we might become children of God in the kingdom of God. So brought to him as a people. So again, Passover to Pentecost. Now, as we continue on from this, we have Passover to Pentecost taking place. But there's, there's another element that comes into play. And it, it comes back to what we were talking about with what was happening with the Jubilee, part one at Sinai and part two at Jericho. Part one at Sinai could not happen without the Passover that happened in Egypt. So you have Passover going to Pentecost. And then, in fact, let's, let's bring that up here just for a moment. So you pass over to Pentecost. It's a very detailed graphic, but try to follow along if you can. <laughs> so, so, so Passover to Pentecost. But it's not just Passover to Pentecost, right? Because you go from deliverance out of Egypt to now covenant relationship with God, and then you go to Jericho, where God is bringing the children of Israel into their inheritance. Now, when, when did Jericho happen? It happened at Passover. Okay, so really what we have 
is we have more of a circle taking place where you're going Passover to Shavuot and Shavuot back to Passover. You have a, you have a cycle taking place. And, you know, God uses his appointed times throughout time for the purposes of restoration, and he repeats them, right? So we're going through a cycle that is ever increasing toward the final redemption. And so what we have here in Acts is we really have this next, okay, so we went Passover to Pentecost, went back to Passover for Jericho, and then we have Yeshua's death and resurrection at Passover, bringing us forward to Pentecost, okay? And now there's going to be a return of Yeshua, and the return of Yeshua is known as the latter redemption. The first redemption happened when the children of Israel were taken out of Egypt. The latter redemption, of course, we have through the death and resurrection of Yeshua, but there's one yet to come still, which I suspect, and I may be totally wrong, but I suspect there's going to be a great deliverance again that will come at the season of Passover, at the season of redemption. For one thing, what happens at the time of, of Passover is that the wicked are judged and the righteous are upheld. You see it at Sodom and Gomorrah, which happened at the time of Passover. You see it in Egypt. You see it where the forces of darkness were destroyed with the death and resurrection of Yeshua. And we'll see it when Yeshua comes in glory at the end of this age and leading into the Messianic era. So his return will be part two of this second phase of the Jubilee. So here in this place, we have Acts showing up in part one and the return of Yeshua showing up in part two with his conquest. So if you look at the, the whole picture here, you have Jubilee coming in these two parts of Sinai and Jericho, and you have it with Acts and the return of Yeshua. Now, just to reiterate something we talked about last week, at Sinai, the jubilee shofar was sounded after the, the revelation of Yeshua. And then it's going to be, and sounded, of course, because there was the sound of a great shofar that happened at Jerusalem as well when the Holy Spirit came. But the, the sounding of the yovel, the ram's horn at Sinai, the sages say, that that was the left horn of the ram offered by Abraham at the binding of Isaac. And they say that its right horn is the shofar that will herald the coming of the Messiah. Now, a question comes up of, well, why did the rabbis expect that the coming of Messiah would be connected to the yovel? And it's because, and what I believe on this is that the, the jubilee Again, because it's setting captives free and it's re returning people to their land, it's the ultimate redemption. It's the end of exile. And God is going to gather all those who are dispersed from the four corners and bring them back to Jerusalem. Now, in Isaiah 27, 13, 
The scriptures say, In that day a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out of the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. So this is speaking of the, the final redemption when a great trumpet will be, will be blown and the, all the exiles will be gathered in. So this, those who are in exile are essentially captives. They're, they're slaves in a land not their own. So now they're returned to their family. They're returned to their inheritance. And this is what we see played out in the Gospels as well about the end of the exile coming with a great shofar blast. And so if we looked at Matthew 24, 31, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So there's the end gathering at this time of this great shofar. And then it's also the same that we find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, okay, with the voice with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then he who, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. So there's the expectation, both in the teachings of the sages and in Isaiah and in Matthew and in the Thessalonians, that there's going to be a great shofar that will sound to herald the return of Yeshua. And I believe that specifically will be a jubilee shofar. Now, do, do I mean, well, not exactly trying to say that it will be a year of jubilee, but it very well could be a year of jubilee. Okay. Um, one thing to, to note here that's interesting as well, to connect the return of Yeshua with the conquest at Jericho. I did not fix the slides. Okay. What I meant to put on the slides is Joshua 5, chapter 13 through 15, and I accidentally typed John. So I'm going to go to the, the scriptures here and read what I intended to read. Okay, so now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, rather I indeed come now as the captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What is my Lord to say to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. It's a pretty cool thought, right? The victory at Jericho, even though he wasn't seen apart from Joshua seeing him, was going before to tear down the walls and bring forth the victory and the inheritance and the conquest. The captain of the Lord's host. And what do we see in the book of Revelation? In Revelation 19, verse 11, the scriptures say, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, 
and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Coming to bring the victory and the conquest to bring his children back, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now, when I say to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, what does that make you think of? Probably makes you think about Luke chapter 4, where Yeshua is speaking and reading from the scroll of Isaiah. This is, this is at the beginning of Yeshua's ministry. He had gone out in the wilderness and spent 40 days fasting, and he would come back in the power of the Spirit and in Luke 4.14, Yeshua returned to the Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release, which is deror, to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say, that, t say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? So here Yeshua is quoting, or he's reading from the scroll of Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 61. Now we're going to read Isaiah, let's, let's go ahead and read Isaiah 61.1. The Spirit of the Lord is God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty, roar to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So you may be asking, why do I keep saying Doror? I haven't even introduced or told you anything about Doror. But Doror is an important word. It's, it's liberty. Okay? And Doror is, it can be translated freedom, liberty, and it can also be translated as, as flowing. Now, in, in uh, Leviticus 25, verse 10, when we read, you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land, the scripture said you shall, pronounce, you shall proclaim deror throughout the land to all its inhabitants. So deror means freedom, liberty, it can mean flowing. Deror is only used twice in the five books of the Torah. I don't know if we're going to talk about the second time it was used today, but we may come back to it. But it's not a word that you're going to find commonly. And not even, not even within the whole of Tanakh would you find it very often. In fact, it shows up in the book of Jeremiah, speaking about the year of Jubilee. And it shows up in Ezekiel, speak, speaking about the year of Jubilee. But then, and then in Isaiah 61, which we just read, it's used again. And so it's speaking of the Jubilee that is coming 
where God is going to proclaim liberty to the captives and opening of the prison to those who have been bound, right? And so now Yeshua has come and he has said, I have been anointed to proclaim release this Doror, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord that was promised. I'm, I'm here for Jubilee purposes. And at his first coming, the Jubilee purpose was what we found there accomplished at Passover through his death and resurrection and through the giving of the Spirit at Shavuot, that he would be taking a people unto himself for part one of the Jubilee. And then later would come with his return to bring the second part of the Jubilee in full to where there's not only a people, but there's a place. There's not just a family, but there's an inheritance that is being restored. Now with Jeror, the reason why I have this other word up here, okay, it's aphesis. And I don't actually know what all those letters are because it's Greek to me. Yeah, that's right. There we go. <laughs> but it is, you know, okay, so we have aphesis. I actually learned how to pronounce it. Pretty proud of that. I don't actually know Greek. But the reason why I have aphesis up here is because we need to have a link between the words that are used in the Brit Hadashah, in the Gospels and in the Epistles, to what we have from the Torah. And one of the ways that we do that is taking a look at the Septuagint. Now, if you're not familiar with what the Septuagint is, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. The Septuagint was written back in the 3rd century B.C. And so it gives us insight into what the understanding of some of the passages were from long ago. And then also gives us understanding in how a Greek wording would be to present a Jewish concept which is explained in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures. So this aphesis is the word that is used for Doror, in Leviticus, it's also the same exact word but with just a little different conjugation that's used to express jubilee in the Septuagint. So this liberty and jubilee are very much tied together. Now, <clears throat> aphesis means freedom and deliverance from captivity. Now, aphesis is also not a very commonly used word. When we find it in in the Gospels and the book of Acts, it is often translated as forgiveness of sins. So, for example, in Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Yeshua Messiah for forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that's, that's one example. Uh, there's many more. I mean... Every time you see forgiveness of sins in the scriptures, it is specifically aphesis that is used. There is a, but this aphesis, this forgiveness of sin, is different than the word that is commonly used for forgiveness. And I don't know how to pronounce that one. Or not, not forgiveness, but forgive. So like if you were to read scriptures that say, um, how many times should I forgive someone? Or if you're in the Lord's Prayer, and you're saying, Lord, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's a different Greek word used for forgive than aphesis. Okay? 
And that, that other word for forgive is common. It's all over the place. But aphesis, um, for example, I'm going to read a couple more of the forgiveness of sin passages. In Luke 1, 76 through 77, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his way, to give his people knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. And when I, when I took this and said, okay, well, forgiveness of sins, I don't think is actually the best translation for, for this offices. Because offices is tying back to the year of liberty. It's tying back to the year in which the captives are set free and in which people are returned to their inheritance. And really, and, and even when Yeshua, okay, sorry guys, one more. When Yeshua took the cup at the Seder before his crucifixion, he, and when he took the cup and gave thanks, he gave it to them and saying, drink from all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins is wonderful and it's necessary, but it's not the full story of redemption. It's the taking away of something, but just because something's taken away doesn't mean you're placed in a new position. Okay? But if you're delivered from captivity of sin, then you are not only delivered, forgiven of it and having it taken away, but you're actually taken out from under sin as a master over you. You're taken out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light. You're delivered from death into life. So when Yeshua says, this is the blood of, my, of the covenant, which is poured out for you for the deliverance from the captivity of sins, he's giving you a whole other picture of redemption is more than just the taking away of sin. It's taking you out from under that which has oppressed you, that which has dominated you, that which has sought to kill you and destroy you and bring you out of that place of death into a place of life, into a place out of Satan's domain into God's domain. It's actually made you a new creation in a new kingdom, in a new family. To me, that's just a whole different level of what this redemption that we have through the blood of Yeshua is. So when you read this, these scriptures, and there's not a lot of them that say forgiveness of sins, just think in your mind, it's deliverance from the captivity of sin. Now, when you think about that too, if you're delivered from the captivity of sin, if sin is no longer your master, then who is your master and what is your master? God is your master, and you're now a slave to righteousness as opposed to a slave to sin. So if you were to go back and reread the whole chapter of Romans 6, which we're not going to do here, but if you go back and read Romans 6, you'll see over and over again Paul saying that you've been taken out from under sin, and you've been placed under grace. You've been placed in this new relationship with God. You've been set free to be this new creation. And so this drawer is, is liberty. It is freedom. It's freedom bought with a price. It's a freedom that brings the ultimate redemption. 
And when we, when we read earlier, kind of bringing back around to Leviticus 26, when we were talking about what was God saying the rewards of faithfulness would be, and the result of the Shemitah and the Yovel and the Jubilee, he said, he said that I will walk among you. I will walk among you. And his spirit would not reject you because he would place his spirit within you. And then the promise to walk among you says that I'm going to create a place also to walk among you. And that place to walk among you will be at the place where God puts his name. It'll be at the, at the place of Jerusalem. Yeshua is going to return in glory. He's going to return in glory, and he's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. And the Torah will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem to all nations. Now, when that happens, there's a restoration taking place to all nations, all 70 nations. Yeshua is ruling and reigning from Jerusalem, but his law of liberty, which is the Torah, is going forth to bring healing to all the nations and restoration to them until the final redemption is made. And we actually have what we see at the end of Revelation in Revelation 21, verses 22 through 24, which say, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple, and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Now, that's at, what I just read there. That's at the time after the thousand-year reign of Yeshua. The thousand-year reign of Yeshua happens during the seventh millennia. Okay, there's 6,000 years appointed for man, and then there's the millennial reign of Yeshua, followed by the age to come. Now, as we're talking about the Jubilee for Israel, the Jubilee for Israel happens every 50 years. And it's every 50 years it's to be proclaimed. And it's a restoration for Israel. But I think we can find an, a concept that the, the jubilees for Israel, as they keep repeating over and over, are not just for Israel, they're for the nations as well. If you look at the festival of Sukkot, right, we haven't been talking about Sukkot. We, we mentioned the three pilgrimage festivals at the beginning of the message, but we talked about Passover, we talked about Shavuot a lot. We haven't really talked about Sukkot. But Sukkot has a part to play in all this as well. At Sukkot, there are 70 bulls that are offered across the seven days when Sukkot is celebrated. And Sukkot is known as the Feast of Ingathering, the ingathering of the nations. It's also known as the time that God will dwell with man. And the sages looked at the 70 offerings of the bulls and they said, why 70? Well, the 70 bulls that are being offered at Sukkot are one for each nation. Such that intercession is being made for the nations, each Sukkot, at the time of God's dwelling. Now, if we take that and we 
creatively adapted over to um, the Jubilee. Then what we could look at is we could say, okay, well, every 50 years, there's a Jubilee for the nations. And there's 70 nations of the earth. So if there were a Jubilee for every nation, it would take 3,500 years for that to be complete. 3,500 years is a long time, but not in God's scheme of things. But if, let's walk through a little bit of the timeline of history. And instead of going slide by slide, I'm just going to throw it all up there at one time. <laughs> okay. In 1948, from creation, Abraham was born. At the age of 100, Abraham and Sarah had Isaac. So that's the year 2048. 400 years later comes the exodus from Egypt. Because there were 400 years for the time of Abraham's offspring to be strangers in a land not their own before the exodus. And this is affirmed in Galatians when, um, when Paul is talking about 430 years from the covenant between the parts to the covenant at Sinai. You can study more on that one uh, at a later time. But there's 400 years from Isaac to the exodus from Egypt. Then there were 40 years of wandering in the wilderness until the conquest of Jericho. It was at, the, it was at that time that the children of Israel were now coming into the land, and the counting for the years of Jubilee should begin. Every 50 years, a Jubilee. Now, if all the nations were to have a jubilee, and 70 jubilees were, be, were to be completed, and we took that 3,500 and added it to the 2488, we'd be right about 6,000 years. Right about 6,000 years and time for the Messiah to come to gather in the exiles and to rule over the entire earth, over all nations from Jerusalem with the word of the Lord going out to all the nations to bring restoration. It's a pretty cool picture. I'm not trying to say that 5988 will be the year of the return. It's just an illustration of when we look at these jubilees and we look at the restoration of all nations and the timing of it, I think it's more than coincidental to say that it's right around 6,000 years the time of the Messiah and the redemption comes. And One other thing within this, before we continue on, and we are getting close to wrapping up. When we, when we look at God's appointed times and His purposes and His plans for restoration for all things, He's looking for a place and a people and for His presence to dwell and to be the center of it all. We found that in the wilderness where coming down at Sinai, God's presence was in the center. His presence was in the tabernacle when the children of Israel would journey. And then his presence was in Jerusalem to be at the center and as the center focus. So you had, you had Passover and Shavuot, and God was in the center of it. And then when you have the death and resurrection of Yeshua and the sending of the Spirit, at Passover and Shavuot, you have God at the center. In both part one and part two, God is always in the move and he is at the center of it all. 
And yesterday, when I was talking about the Jubilee and how it plays into all the holidays, I said, I think you can find the Jubilee in every holiday. But I wasn't really positive, and I still have to work on it. Uh, but we know we see the Jubilee being played out in Passover and Shavuot. And as I was thinking about that cycle, and I was thinking about God being the center, I was thinking, man, wouldn't it be cool if there was a holiday where God was at the center and it was all about the dwelling of God with man? And it is, right? It's what we talked about before. It's Sukkot, the tabernacles, the season of our joy in God's dwelling. So you have Passover and Shavuot working out this jubilee, but all of it with God at the center, right? Where these three holidays are all working, God's working within all of these holidays to bring about his restoration and proclaim the jubilee year. So it's, it's intricate, it's detailed, there's a lot going on. But with it, there's no jubilee without Yeshua without his death and his resurrection paving the way for the giving of the Spirit, and without the promise of his return to come and bring victory and bring an end to this exile that we're, we are in. And our hope is in his coming. Our hope is in seeing him come at the end of the age when he will gather in all those who've been scattered. He will gather in the elect, right? We read that in Matthew twenty four thirty one. If we still have that here, I'm not sure. Um, but Matthew 24, 31, it says at the sound of the shofar that he will gather in all the elect from the four corners of the earth. And the year of jubilee will be proclaimed. And we will see the victory of the Lord in our midst and his presence. And one of the key themes that we've talked about last week and yesterday is the idea of what are we doing along the way to prepare for our coming king. What is it and how are we positioning ourselves for his coming glory? And we have a question? I'm not speaking about the rapture. Um, so, yeah, so I'm, I'm not speaking of the rapture. I'm actually speaking about... Um, at the second coming of Yeshua, I'm speaking about the exiles being brought from the four corners of the earth back to Jerusalem. Um, when they meet him in the sky, it's meet him in Shemayim. It's Heaven is not the permanent resting place for those who are in Messiah. It is a temporary holding place until the resurrection of the dead at the coming of Yeshua. That's the resurrection of the righteous who will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. I know there's a lot of different views on the rapture, so I'm not trying to address all of that here. But our, our, uh, our view on it is that Yeshua will come and that he will gather in the people to Jerusalem and that God's people will rule and reign with Yeshua to bring restoration to the world to prepare for the final resurrection where both the, 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 uh, when all are resurrected and stand before the throne of judgment. Um, and so, and that, that is an interesting aspect where, uh, while we're not trying to go into that today, it's a key aspect to how we view the coming redemption and why we are so excited about the return of Yeshua. We're excited not about an escape from trouble, 
but we're excited about a restoration of all things and that his restoration, that God's restoration of the earth is at the hand of Yeshua with those who belong to him at his right hand to come and bring forth that restoration to the world. And so, yes, there will be tribulation and God promises to be with us in tribulation. Um, I'm going to have to do a more detailed discussion of that in the future. Um, but we, we don't have time to go into it today, but great question. Um, so, but we look forward to his coming because of the transformation that will be taking place. But along the way, there's a transformation that's supposed to take place in us. And I wasn't really planning to go into this because I feel like there's probably a little too much going on, but I, I feel like it's uh, important from the aspect of how we're preparing ourselves and you know how I mentioned Doror is only used twice in the, the first five books of the Torah. It's used also in Exodus 30, verse 23. In Exodus 30, verse 23, it is... Here, just so I... Well, no, I'm not going to go there. We'll have to come back to it another time. But it's speaking about how Moses is to create the oil of anointing the oil that will be used to anoint the tabernacle and to anoint the priests. And it says that you will take myrrh of Doror, myrrh of Doror, along with several other spices, to create this thing that will anoint the tabernacle, set it apart, and anoint the priesthood. Now, more Doror, it's like, that's one, that's one reason why it's translated as flowing. Sometimes it's translated as pure. But Doror, that's an interesting way to say it because there's other ways it could be said. But if we think about it as this, this myrrh that brings liberty and is connected to the Jubilee, then it begins to, to paint a picture because myrrh is not mentioned much in the Scripture either. Okay, Myrrh is mentioned as being brought as a gift to Yeshua when he was young. It's also mentioned as being what Yeshua was anointed with at his burial. This oil, the scripture actually says, belongs to God. It belongs to God. And it's this myrrh, myrrh is mentioned only a few times throughout the Tanakh. One, it's mentioned with regard to Esther as she's preparing herself to go before the king. So it's in the context of a bride preparing herself for a king. It's also mentioned in Psalm 40, 45, 8, which is a, a messianic psalm talking about the coming of King Messiah. And it says that the clothes of the groom are fragranced with myrrh. This, this anointed one who's coming and myrrh. So you have the groom and you have the bride. This bride that has been delivered from the captivity of sin, who has been anointed by the Holy Spirit in preparation for her coming king, who has the oil of anointing on him, who is both high priest and king. So cool to think about all these connections. So the theme of jubilee, the theme of this restoration and this freedom is interwoven throughout scriptures. 
but we often don't see it because we don't see it translated explicitly. But God's purpose in restoration is delivering a people for his own possession that he may dwell in and among, and he has set us free to be his own. So here at this time of Shavuot, we're celebrating that deliverance, that new life that we have in him and giving glory to him and saying, yes, Lord, come. And we look to the return of Yeshua and the restoration of all things. Amen. Did anybody have anything that you want to share before we pray? You were talking about the dependency of um, Shavuot and and Passover, and immediately just I recall John sixteen verse seven, and it's the Master speaking, and he says, "Nevertheless, I tell you." The truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the help, helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's an immediate like dependency there. And then the very last um, thing that you were talking about um, with uh, just Ephesians 2.10, um, where we are his... You were talking about the kingdom um, and... and kind of the eschatology viewpoint, right? And how that can color what you do in this life um, because we are not looking for escape, right? Um, we are looking to bring, we are aligning ourselves to the mission of God. And the mission of God is bringing the, his kingdom to this earth, yes. right? And so we are working in coordination with him in doing that now. We're not just waiting to escape something to go to a better place, right? We are working with him mm-hmm. to bring his kingdom here. And so that is like activity, right? That's that's uh, purpose. Um, and so Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship created in the Messiah, Yeshua for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Hmm. Right. Amen. Amen. Absolutely. And that's the thing, that's the partnership and the restoration that we get to walk in today. And you know, you just, what just came back to my mind within the preparation, and I mentioned this last week, and I think it's, it's a key part. At Sinai, God told Moses to tell the people to prepare for his coming, right? And then at Pentecost in Jerusalem, Yeshua, Yeshua told his disciples, stay in Jerusalem until power comes to you. So he's saying, be prepared, stay in a, in a state of readiness. And so they did. They remained in prayer together until the, co- the coming of the Spirit. And even now, there's a call for us to prepare ourselves for our coming King, to be found faithful upon His arrival. And even in each one of these stories, there's a further element of going up, right? So at the Jubilee, or the, 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 shofar, the jubilee shofar at Sinai, God said, put a boundary around the, around the mountain, and when they hear the, the sound of the shofar, then they may come up. And Joshua, when the sound of the shofar went, the walls fell and they went up into the city. When we read about the coming of Yeshua and the shofar, it says that then we, they will rise to meet him in the air. So every time you have this jubilee shofar, you have the people going up, being lifted up, going to a higher standing and status 
And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a really, really cool picture. And I just yeah. wanted to say that um, yesterday afternoon, evening, I guess, I had the opportunity to share that translation difference, deliverance, to three people, different people in different places that I knew to whom it would be relevant. And they all had the exact same reaction that I did. This changes everything. Mm. I, it's so powerful and it's so huge. And it, I think it's a message everybody could say that to, you know. It needs to get out there. Just thinking, we missed, we've overlooked this or missed this for all this time. It, it is life-changing. Anyway, just yes, wanted to say God. thanks. Biggest, you know, that word's going out now. Yeah, thank you for sharing. Yeah, I, I, I will say that this week um, there was so much revelation going on at one point that I felt overwhelmed to where I was like, I, I don't know if I can take it. And I had to step back. And then, uh, but it was just so much happening. And a lot of it began with this idea of deliverance from captivity of sin. It's like, it's not your master anymore. And then all the connections of just this liberty interwoven throughout the entire scriptures for the, for the king and for the, the people. It's wonderful. Praise God. But definitely reread Romans 6 in context of that deliverance. It's really, really cool. Okay, anyone else? All right, let's pray. Father, we bless you and we thank you for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, for the great deliverance that you have given us. Lord, thank you that you have transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into your marvelous light. And thank you, Lord, that just as the walls at Jericho fell, so too the walls of hell fall, and those who are held captive are released through the blood of Yeshua. Thank you, Lord, that there is no power that can stand against you. Thank you, Lord, that everything is being brought under the foot of Yeshua and that he will rule and reign, and of the increase of his kingdom there shall be no end. Thank you, Lord, that our king is returning as a conquering Messiah, and that he will rule and reign. Lord, may we keep our eyes fixed on his coming. May we keep our eyes fixed on your goodness, on the righteousness that you have laid before us and placed within us. And may we be partners with you in this restoration. We thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness. We bless you in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.